Welcome to today's episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform, where we talk all things DNI to ask whether DNI can save us, get us free, or move us towards collective liberation. I'm Connie. And I'm David. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into whether DNI is revolution or reform with guests who are DNI practitioners, activists, organizers, or academics and researchers in the field. We talk strategy, mindsets, growth, learnings, and mistakes, and even some juicy DNI confessions. Because at the end of each day, we're all humans just trying to do our best. All right, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform. It's David rolling solo today. Connie isn't able to join us, but we have a really special guest, Carissa Begonia. Carissa is a first-generation Filipino-American. She's the founder of Conscious Exchange, an equity-focused leadership and business coaching and consulting company with a mission to forward the economic advancement of Black and Indigenous people of color, women, and other folks of historically marginalized identities. Among other things, she is the former head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Zappos and has over 15 years of experience working on the both operations and human side of some of the country's biggest retailers, including Macy's, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Ross. A lot of her work now sits at the intersection of DEI and emotional intelligence, supporting leaders and organizations in developing and operationalizing their equity strategy at the personal, interpersonal, and systemic levels. Those are all wonderful things about Carissa, but I was really excited to connect with her last year around March or April at the height of visibility of anti-Asian racism. Those problems haven't gone away and we've both continued to do the work and I'm really excited to reconnect. So thank you for being here, Carissa. Thanks so much for the invite, David. I'm really excited as well. We always start by asking our guests to share their lineage in this work of quote unquote diversity and inclusion. So how did this get started for you? Yeah, so if I take it back formally, it started with my role at Zappos as the head of diversity and inclusion at Zappos. Prior to that, kind of how that even happened, because I spent most of my career in more of an operational capacity and strategy operations. And I had successfully climbed this ladder that I was so ambitious about climbing and got to, you know, finally got my seat at the table. And, you know, at a progressive company, I was like, yeah, it's going to be diverse here. Right. And I get there and I was the first, the only, the other, right. I was the first woman, the woman of color, right. The youngest one on the team, like with the decision-making power. And so it was just really interesting. I gave myself a pat on the back, but then I was like, wait a minute, like, where is everybody, you know? And so in this new role that I was leading and this new team I was leading, I think I was starting to feel some of those, I think, typical things you feel when you are like kind of that first person and that only person at the seat of the table and was really as, as I really was really identifying as a woman um, at that time. And so I was looking for other women of women leaders in the company. And so I started a women's group, really like it's kind of reminiscent of an ERG say. And I ran that for about a year and a half. I did kind of community programming, internal fireside chats, things like that educational programs and such. And then I started to realize that I was enjoying doing this kind of work more than I was enjoying my actual day job. Right. And I was, of course, wasn't getting paid for, for that side, that side stuff. So I decided that, you know, I really want to see if there's an opportunity to do DEI work internally. And I noticed that we didn't actually have a formal, a formal role, which I was a little bit surprised by because we had some of the other CSR roles with environmentalism and, and what's it called? Philanthropy. And so I was a little surprised that we didn't have a formal DEI role. So I kind of took some months to 
pitch for that and put it all together with some, the aid of some of my, you know, fellow w- women leaders that in the group and pitched that to the former um, or the late Tony Shea and, and others of the C-suite. And thankfully they gave it to me. I was a little kind of shocked actually. I'm really excited, put everything together. They gave it to me. And I guess almost immediately as I got the role, I also had imposter syndrome. I was like, what am I doing? Like what, what qualifications do I have to be here and to be doing this, this work? But that's a little bit of that background of how I showed up um, into that formal role of DEI and how kind of after that was going back into school, learning a lot more doing a lot more like multicultural education and, and such. And so that's a little bit of that initial journey. Yeah. Uh, two things. One, like, you know, nobody grows up as a kid's like, you know what I want to be? The director of diversity, equity, and inclusion when I grow up at, you know, whatever company. You know, you talked about like you had more of a business operations background and, you know, what were the things that you were wanting to do coming into to work? Because you have like a pretty extensive business background. Like what were the things that you were looking to achieve? You talked about the shift that happened when you started feeling lonely at the quote unquote top, but what were your initial goals coming into the workforce? Yeah. Well, I was excited. It was the first uh, time I had left New York. I grew up in New York and I was really wanting to move to the West Coast, namely LA. I didn't quite get there. I landed in Las Vegas. <laughs> it was on West Coast time, but I was in, in Vegas. And, you know, that's a fun story too. I was working in the fashion industry for most of my career and I was starting to get really bored with it and just not excited. Kind of what I felt was really superficial. And so I kind of had a little bit of an identity crisis and I was at a company that just, I immediately knew as soon as I got there that I didn't want to be there. And I stuck it out for three months because I don't know, daughter of immigrants, you don't leave a job, you know, for more than less than a year, I guess, or, you know, you don't leave without a job either, like lined up. And so, but I was just so heartbroken being there. I just was miserable every day. And I was like, this is not going to get better. And it was funny because I wanted to be at that company. Like I did all this research to say like, that's, I targeted that company and I got it. And sometimes be careful what you wish for. So I was there for three months. I resigned and immediately panicked and got another job in kind of the same industry, same field and turned it down. You know, it was more money, more bigger title. And I turned it down because I said, Hey, I, this just gonna be more of the same. So I packed up my stuff in my New York, expensive New York city apartment, moved in with my parents for a few months and just kind of sat there and figure out like, what is it that I want to do? And what is it that's going to be meaningful for me? And I kind of had some discernment of, well, I, I'm not sure I can go back into the nonprofit space and starting from scratch and feeling like I have to, you know, not make the great, the best money. You know, I got used to a certain comfortable lifestyle. And so I kind of said, Hey, wait, I might need to go in into some role that is similar to or the industry that I'm used to, but finding a company that was more aligned with my values. And at the time it was Zappos and Tom shoes for in the fashion retail industry. That's, those were kind of the, the two players of places that were more culturally and responsible or just engaged and socially responsible. And so I applied to both cold LinkedIn recruiters and such in, within both companies Tom Shoes never got back to me, but Zappos did. And I was flown out twice for a couple different roles. And three months later, I, I found myself moving my entire life to Las Vegas, Nevada. And nothing I would ever assumed I, or thought I would end up. But it was a very pivotal kind of moment, both in my career and my life. 
And so it was, it was that first, that shift of what is it that is meaningful to me? What is purposeful for me and honoring that and not just saying, well, I can make more money and I can get a bigger title, but that doesn't actually bring me joy or satisfaction at this point. So let's change this thought process and, and, and fix this. And so I did. And then again, did not think that I would end up in a DEI role there, but I think what I first wanted was lifestyle. I wanted to move West. So it was aligning with dreams and like bigger ambitions of lifestyle and again, purpose. So that was the biggest motivation. And it was a cool, I was, the role I ended up taking was a, was a innovative, like our new role. It was a kind of like a startup within the larger Zappos ecosystem. So it was, and the Amazon ecosystem. So it was really fun in that way that it was a smaller team. I was, had a lot of responsibility. It could make decisions and stuff. So I really liked that element of it too. So bringing still that business strategy element in to like for my, you know, professional side, but then my lifestyle was probably, or then like my life values were probably the biggest driver of moving there in the first place. Yeah. And over, you know, we're talking about 2013 at this point. And so over the next couple of years, working your way up, like the other thing that stood out to me in the story is like, there was no DEI role within the construct of that post. What was it like to pitch that? And how was that responded to in that space? Because I imagine there's some people listening to this who were like, yeah, we don't have someone who is really pushing those things like from from the top in our org. Like, what was it like to engage people in senior leadership on like, no, this is something that we need? Yeah, I, I'm going to say these are fun stories because I think they actually are really interesting, fun stories and how you end up in places that you wouldn't have imagined. But one of when one of the all hands meetings, there was this activity where basically deck of cards, any employee at the all hands could have you know, taking that card and say, there's 52, right? And deck and pitch an idea basically to the, to the entire company on stage. Right. And I had been feeling, I had gotten a new role within that startup division to spearhead a new team. And that was where I started to feeling those, like get those feelings of a little bit of loneliness or where are the other women leaders in this company that I can kind of lean on. And so that'd been kind of on my mind for some time. And so when this all hands came around and there was this opportunity to ask whether or not anyone else was interested in this topic amongst like, you know, all the employees, I was nervous to get up. And I think I saw a couple friends get up and I said, you know what, like, just go, just, you know, F it. Like, I'm just going to go and share what I'm thinking about. And that was the first kind of courage, like summoning of courage I had to, I, I had for myself is speaking on stage to the entire company and pitching this idea. And it was immediate, like it wasn't like anything planned. So it was just free flowing. Right. So that was one. And then part of that activity was we would go to another space where after all 52 ideas were shared, the employees could kind of gather with those, those speakers to see and just kind of do something there from that, like come up with something from, from that, you know, that idea. And from that idea, later I was told it was the most attended or most interesting topic of all, which again was, was about women in leadership and really promoting more women within the company. And so that was kind of proof to me that I, it's not just me who's thinking about this. There's a lot of folks who care about this subject, evidently. And so that gave me my first push to start creating programming. And then I think that just made me bolder to, to start like aligning. And frankly, some of the senior women that I was looking for initially <laughs> were really thankful that I started like that pitch that. And, you know, it was kind of helping them like reevaluate what was going on for them in their roles, even though they've been there for you know, 10, 15 years or so. Right. And so that was exciting to have that like allyship, I guess, and camaraderie 
And so that's kind of the first iteration was when I was running that ERG, for instance, for about a year and a half. And so then coming to pitching uh, this idea, and I'll, I'll share that it wasn't absent of DEI programming. It wasn't, it just wasn't formalized, right? So so there were other leaders, if you will, that were doing kind of other programs and, and having conversations, hosting things through some time. And this just gave me more experience. And just, again, I was meeting people. So, so like, like people who helped me figure out like what the strategy, if you will, was to, to pitch this role. And I think from the experience of doing that for about a year and a half, right? I think a lot of times when people ask me, like, how do you, you know, get into DI work or how do you start something when from nothing, right? It wasn't immediate. It, it took at least a year and a half. And I know, again, there were some other programs happening with other folks for, for something to be more formal to be created, right? And I had to have that courage to, to spearhead it myself too. So some internal work was going on or sometimes you're, I think you're just at your wit's end. Sometimes you're like, I can't do anything else. There is no other option. This is so important. I have to just go with it. Um, I think when you trust that, magic can happen. And so, and I prepared, you know, a whole deck and all this stuff for for the C-suite to kind of like prove what I was talking about was was going to be useful and beneficial. And again, because I had a year and a half of doing it internally already, they're like, yes, we want someone to do this, right? And in retrospect, I will say, I'm glad. I will hope that they're having they have a more <laughs> qualified, if you are educated person coming in now, especially in this world where there are a lot of DEI consultants that have been, you know, doing some of this work for years. And even if not, you know, maybe some adjacent work, but I think just starting and having people around you who see the vision that you have, who can support you and is, is wildly important. And it, and a lot of those senior leaders, the women who were senior leaders in the company that I've met through this ERG help set up the conversations, right? They, encouraged me when I was like, I'm not ready to like, you can do this. I will set up the conversations for you. Here are some of my own examples and things that I'd want. Here's my experience in pitching and whatever, right? So getting coached by them informally too, or mentored by them was also really helpful. Yeah, I love that you're highlighting one, that this takes time and two, that you don't do this alone, right? There are people alongside you who are experiencing similar things, right? You talked about women feeling lonely, unheard, unseen in the ways that they needed to be seen. And of course, like there are lots of other intersections of identity that inclusion, equity, all of that can, for lack of a better word, include, right? But as you build that momentum, build that community over time, right, that kind of change can happen. So that's words of encouragement for folks who might feel like they're alone in their space. You're probably not, right? Find your people and start to build. Like change can happen from from inside in some ways. But what do you do when you get to that seat uh, at the table? I know you said you're experiencing some like imposter syndrome, but what did your work look like starting not the DEI work from the ground up? Because you said there were already things going on, but like, what did it look like to be that first within the construct of Zappos at that time? Yeah, I'll say that it felt like a lot of pressure. So I have a lot of grace for folks who are, you know, the singular head of DEI in their companies, because just like a lot of people say, you don't get a lot of resources. People are confused at what you do, right? And it's not something that's so specific and technical. That's like, hey, we're, you know, you're an engineer, say, right? Like you're going to build this program. You're going to build this thing, right? DEI spans across the entire company. And we're starting to talk now of removing it from HR. And it's not, you know, it's a company strategy, not an HR strategy, right? And so 
at the time, that was still kind of a new conversation, right? And so I understood this as, wait a minute, I have to talk to like the head of marketing and the head of tech, the head of finance. Like I have to be aligned with all the heads, right? And I am a director manager, not a VP, right? And so my influence is, is not as strong yet. My seniority here is not as strong yet, right? Thankfully, I am a social person. And so I've climbed the ladder successfully for a reason, maybe, because I know how to talk to folks and it can be influential. But there was some like fear of, you know, who's going to listen to me, right? I think that's why that coaching and that mentorship and was really important. And what was great about Zappos is it was somewhat kind of flat in terms of an organization that they didn't put so much emphasis on the titles and your seniority. So I mean, that's what gave me this this opportunity, right? But I still carried that because that's a lot of what the structures are like in other organizations, right? So regardless of the, whether the organization itself had that company culture, I was still holding that for against myself, right? First time at the company, I think it was it was embraced, right? It was exciting for to have a formalized kind of per, a person to run specific programming. What I found challenging was this was it was overwhelming in terms of how many different areas of the business, I would have to now put this lens on, right? And I think I underestimated that truly myself. And so I really started more on kind of the numbers and seeing what the lay of the land was, you know, in terms of representation, say. And, you know, I my former role was as an operations as an analyst too. And so when I'm breaking down data and numbers, it's not just like, well, here's the black and white representation. No, like, why is this happening, right? So, and again, I when you're trying to do too many things, it could become like, you're only doing so many things well, right? And I think that was, if I, in retrospect, if I kind of think about it, I really wish I could have focused on maybe two initiatives as opposed to trying to like meet all these different like leaders and trying to spear up head initiatives for in all these different like uh, areas of the business. And so that's kind of how I would redo, if I will, my strategy. But, you know, I think something that's, you know, that a lot of DEI folks for also experiences, sometimes this kind of urgency that, that, oh my gosh, I have a voice right now. There's a tension now. I think we particularly saw this in 2020, 2021. And we know from experience from past, this, this probably will go away. And we're seeing that in 2022, right? This is going to die down if we didn't already see it in 2021. And so that urgency feels real um, to us that, hey, someone's paying attention. I'm going to grab that right now, which then means sometimes we may have too many things going on at the same time and burnout for sure. So that's kind of the, the strategy, structural stuff that was, that was working towards. And at the same time, personally, what I was going through was not being able to do enough for everything for everyone. Right. You know, you talked about intersectionality and I was really focused on women a little bit more, probably heavily, because I that was the space I was in prior. And so starting to introduce conversations around the LGBTQIA plus community and, and like bringing programming in for there specifically for that identity and and finding the right experts and leaders, both community and internally to kind of spearhead initiatives. But it all takes time and it all needs requires building trust and this industry is not something I think when people come in with a lot of trust. And so that, ha- that has to, that community and that personal relationship building has to, to happen. And so, again, I think I felt like really pressured to do all the things for all the people. And I know I failed at that. And that, w- that was heartbreaking. And I think sometimes we don't know how much a, and I'm a solo practitioner now inside internally, right? So I don't have anyone to talk to about this, really. No one really understands. I'm also a woman of color, right? So 
yes, a lot of my people I'm talking to are do not look like me, right? And so how am I finding kind of comfort or kind of support? And it, it was it was challenging. I, de- I definitely felt alone in that role. And you know what, what I put so much emphasis now, again, when people are asking me, they're so excited to get DEI jobs. I'm like, please understand the emotional like labor that this takes, especially if you're the solo person in there, you need to find your community outside of the organization because you also have this pressure of being responsible for it internally, right? So how you have to kind of know everything, right? If there's no one else doing this work, then you have to know it all, right? That was kind of stories I was telling myself at least at the time. And already coming in with some imposter syndrome of feeling not qualified enough to even have this role and going back to school simultaneously and like learning more, like to kind of help build and create my frameworks and create my strategy. There was a lot of happening in my own education at the same time of trying to teach and like, you know, gather everyone and, and or kind of find the right people also, the right experts um, around to also take on the, some of that work and then influence them to do want to do it. Because again, it's not like everyone's getting paid at least on the internal side, right? To do it other than myself, right? So there's just a lot to navigate. And even for organizations, I say, I'm almost not sure that it's gonna be possible if there is one person trying to do this. I think you can make some headway, but I think for the larger kind of shift to happen in organizations, organizations have to take this seriously They and, and staff it appropriately. And that means every say division, marketing, finance, whatever, HR, all have DEI leaders within those verticals. And if we're not putting resources and money and such towards that and hiring towards that, I frankly am not sure how successful organizations will be in, in executing not just a DEI strategy, or but actually making, truly making inclusion and belonging real for, for folks, especially folks of color, in these organizations. So I will say that pretty strongly. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Like if it's not on the agenda with like both time, resources, financial as well, right? What are the results that you're going to expect? Because, you know, solo practitioners putting this all on one person for hundreds, thousands, even like tens of, of employees, right? Like that's, that's just not going to cut it. Not everyone's a subject matter expert in identities either. So it's just, it's actually impossible for one person to, to truly do all this work. They have to have external re- other resources, right? They have to have other partners um, and thought leaders and, and experts to both teach, educate, and then carry people through with quote unquote strategy, but or like create a real change and again, culture of belonging. So you're not at Zappos anymore. You left a little bit after you took that role. Why the transition? Yeah, I had been in Vegas for almost five years at that point. And I think part of my heart knew I was never going to be there for a long time. And I think knowing when I took that role too, I was starting to see how long change was going to take. And I'm not talking about a year or two. I'm like, this is going to be like a 10 year plus at least like thing, right? To get to a place where I really believe we could be. And I I do have, I still, I have a lot of hope for them. Like I think it, I had a lot of hope at the time, right? And, but I think this comes back to when I was at the other company that I ended up leaving after three months was just honoring myself more and said, this is no longer something that feels good and fits for me, even though this role is important to me. Actually, what's important in terms of my lifestyle and my priorities is that I don't want to be in the city anymore. I'm already, I think I've outgrown the city in a period and kind of weighing how long, how 
laborious emotionally, especially this, this role was going to be and how it's going to take out of me and knowing that I wasn't even sure how much I wanted to be here anymore. The, the excitement I think was like, I, I don't know if I have it and, you know, and what it takes, like have it in me to put all the energy that it's going to take to do this well. And so ultimately I think I really decided on what, what was best for myself. And I, again, still had the dream of moving to LA. And so that was something I really wanted to do, but more than I think moving to LA at that point was, I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. Like I was doing entrepreneurial work probably from the start of my career. I was always given a new division or a new, like something to spearhead as and even when I was young. Right. So I think that was always something burning in me. And I think when I finally had this role and I was getting starting something from scratch again, I saw how more effective I might be as a, as a consultant doing some of this work. Right. So I left more sort of pursue entrepreneurial like life. (laughs) I wanted to be able to live everywhere and anywhere. I was, I'm from New York. Right. But I really wanted to move to LA, but I have very close to family and all that and, and have a huge network in New York. So I was very adamant about being a being bi-coastal. So I thought the only way I could do that remote work was not necessarily prevalent at that time was to be my own boss. So I, I was like all the kind of situations cards aligned at the, this was the right time. And I felt there was no other option. Like there was no second guessing it. I was like, I, I want to just do my own thing. Like if I'm successful at creating new things from nothing multiple times over internally, then I've got the knowledge of things. I know how to start run a business, but what if the passion was really up there, right? What could I create? I mean, it wasn't going to be something I would create for someone else, for other companies, right? It was going to be something like I had complete control of or, and creative direction and whatnot on. So that was more of the, the impetus for me to go was saying like, this is going to take some time. And I don't know if I'm, if I have it in me to do it. I actually think I could also be more effective if I was external than internal. And I still almost say a little bit of that for, you know, the DI industry for, for both consultants now and external consultants and internal, internal folks that I think it takes both, right? I think, you know, there's people internally who have the ears, who have the influence, who can get, who can spearhead initiatives and get them approved of by leadership, right? And, and then there's the external folks who, again, like you have to hire so many different people because of the subject matter experts, identities and, and such that you need a lot everyone's got a different flavor to, to, to bring to the table. And generally those people aren't internal. So expertise or subject matter expertise, different, and even different areas of business, like the verticals, right? Uh, I don't think a communications person is the same as an HR person is the same as, you know, um, someone doing learning development, right? So even just the diversity in both the subject matter and the verticals, as well as identities is I think what's required. And so that's why I think teams have to be whether that's internally built or externally built and a combination of both have to have so many different people in it. And and hence the resourcing has to be there for it. Yeah. And so now like we're fast forwarding a couple of years from that transition, you're working through the lens of like conscious exchange. What is the work that you're doing as a consultant now? If you asked me this a couple months ago, it's, it's actually changed from, from then till now. So I think this is, I'm in this evolutionary period, if you will, of my career. I think all of us are constantly. And so I think I'm embracing that evolution. And so at this point of time, I realized that what I have a lot of passion around is talking about the intersection of diversity, inclusion, and, and EQ. And EQ being 
the emotional capacity to have to both hold yourself in these spaces as well as other people. I think a lot of practitioners do an amazing job of education. And I think at the time when I was trying to do like starting this, these initiatives up, the education part of it wasn't so welcomed. I, I feel like, you know, in terms of like even textbook education, historical education is what I'm, is what I specifically mean. And now we're realizing how critical that is to the understanding of where we are today and the policies that we have in place today, right? And so where I find my strength is, is really having the conversations and like both from an influence, like, hey, get foot in the door, but also from like holding space. And I think some of the work out there is very heady and that's needed and necessary and, and, and important. And there's also, well, what about the processing part of this, right? And I, I haven't met a lot of folks who are able to do both. And so maybe again, this is why I'm saying there were teams of folks who, how do you teach? How do you, are you a social justice educator? So you can teach the facts, you can teach the history, right? You've, that's what you've been studying and learning for some time. And there are other say coaches, for instance, that are folks who are able to, or therapists or whatnot, who are able to hold the spaces for the, for the emotional processing that is happening, often even real time, right? And so, and, and I love how organizations too are starting to bring in more like mental health and programs again, or experts or advocates and such so that that processing can, can have space, right? Whether that's DEI race related or, or otherwise. So back to your question though, of like what I am specifically doing, I am finding myself teaching workshops around the baseline of like emotional processing, right? How do we be more in tune with what is going on for us emotionally? How do we give language to our, our feelings? How we start to name them? How we start to identify patterns in both the way we act or, or triggers that we might have and how we are responding to them. And also some of the body-based stuff that we're feeling, like, you know, paying attention to when our body is telling us um, very important information about uh, how something is like, feeling about a person, about a situation, a conversation and whatnot. And then also how to, so how to navigate all of that and then how to then be quote unquote productive in your conversation next so that you can kind of get what you want out of it, right? So you can set the boundaries that you want so that you can move forward with say, if there's a strategy around this, right? So you can build relationship with, with people. So that's largely where I'm finding more of my work is both from a, a workshop kind of standpoint and a coaching standpoint is having people say practitioners and employees on how to how to better regulate or how to and manage some of those very deep emotions that are coming up, and then also stories that we've had for in a former past. And you know, those are that's, those are the, the root of why these emotions are, are are coming, right? There are there are experiences that we've had that in my work with folks with individuals, particularly that they are they don't realize how these stories have impacted them, and that these these stories are even exist, right? Like I think I have my own personal story of racism that. I did not really quite understand until I went through emotional intelligence training. When I started to like retell this story of when I was nine, my first experience with, with racism when I was nine, I was realizing that was driving so much of my motivations and even my experiences in my adult life, but had not connected the two things until my like thirties. Right. And so to me, that was such a eye-opening kind of time to, to, to see like what, how that story of when I was nine, that experience when I was nine was actually impacting my life today. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're kind of wrapping our questions around like, what are you wrestling with? What do you want people in the field to really know into this discussion, right? Because it is both for people who have been harmed and people who have caused harm and are 
experiencing the emotions that come with that, like the defensiveness, the the guilt, the shame, and like how do we navigate those things, right? We're all people who cause harm and have been harmed in in different spaces and you know through my restorative justice lens i'm thinking all the time about like what it takes to navigate that conflict and meet the needs of everybody involved but tending to folks emotions is so important right because humans need to be seen for for who they are right i believe at the core like people are good wise and powerful and there are lots of different reasons why people do things that are not good wise or helpful or beneficial (laughs) in any given situation but being able to meet someone at that human level sometimes with education sometimes with um you know, reprimand or critique, like being able to be attentive to those emotions is is just so important. Are there any stories of like when people that you've worked with have embodied these practices and like things have been changed for the better? You know, I recently did this EQ DEI workshop and it was really heartwarming to hear the person who brought me in, I guess, had found me LinkedIn or whatnot, and just like listen to some of the things that I've been doing. You know, the EQ work, where I think it's so valuable and paying attention to emotions is A, you know, especially again, as a like children of immigrants and women of color, right? Like we're told to suppress these things, right? That is like a pretty consistent, like at least my Asian culture or like Filipino culture. We don't talk about emotions, right? And so I, I didn't have this skill set when I was younger. And it's so relieving to be able to be fully expressed. And so kind of that first barrier of like, I'm not taught how to do it. And I'm kind of told not to, right. In my, from a cultural standpoint, and then also Western culture, right. It's like, we're from a leadership standpoint, we're not supposed to show our vulnerabilities. We're not like, it's, that's not, I think the language is changing now, but even two years ago is, and currently I'll say strength is, is being bold and outspoken and powerful and, you know, strong. It's not being, not crying in front of your people, right? Again, I love how that that narrative is changing, but it's still a lot of work to do to, to really embrace that as a leadership quality, right? To be able to be vulnerable. And so this organization I was working with, the person who brought me on to speak, just shared with me how even from one, I think, recording she saw of me doing something, she was like, you, you, and the one conversation I had as I was trying to like onboard and kind of talk about a contract and whatnot, She's like the convers- the couple conversations I have with you person have been life changing for me. Like I look at the my like the lens of which I look at things now, um, and how I honor myself and my feelings is completely different. And then one of her partners on the team also shared she has she identifies as a white woman but has a daughter who is Latina, and was saying that you know I I feel like I can better relate and better understand and talk to my daughter. And, like, and, and having her feel empowered in the workplace when she grows up, she's young, wildly important to me, right? And so there are mistakes maybe made and some things that are said, but I think you, like you're, to your point, people are good, right? And like we might just not have all the tools and such. And so to hear both of these women tell me like I, I've changed kind of my point of view, even being able to voice my emotions, like that alone has been cathartic and has been helpful, right? And it's like kind of that entry point maybe to starting to becoming more vulnerable, right? And share more stories and how, you know, one of the stories was too that like she's opened up. She's like, I didn't connect my stories from the past to now. And I think that's a pretty common one that I get from, you know, feedback I get from folks who are in my workshops or who coach with me. And like, there is a reason that you do what you do. There's a reason you care about this work. And I don't think anyone who gets involved in like diversity and inclusion work or anything adjacent to it 
does it because like you said in the beginning, because they, they, they dreamed of it when they were younger. I think it comes from an experience had at some point of life that is just unacceptable. And like there, every bone in their body is like, I have to do something about this because this was so painful to be judged, especially for around racism, right? Like to be judged by something you cannot change and like you are naturally born with, AKA color of skin, shape of my eyes, right? To be judged so harshly, uh, uh, personally and like systemically <laughs> for it. It's just so painful that I can't, every bone in my body has to work against this, right? And I think folks have, all folks who care and really truly get into this work have a story, you know? And so I, what I initially help people do is voice that story, even if it's just to themselves first, right? That's how then you end up showing up on podcast or creating Amplify RJ or Conscious Exchange. That's how you get from like one place to to a, a place on stage. It's not overnight, you know? So it's starting with that first personal story. Like, why does this actually matter to you? What has happened and how can we heal it? And so that we can help heal others. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for for going deep and sharing all those things. I know that there are a ton of gems dropped in there that people um, across different parts of their careers in this work, whether you're just exploring, whether you're doing the work from the inside, whether you're doing it from the outside of organizations can relate. We have a couple questions that we ask on the way out. Is DNI revolution or reform? <laughs> reform. Just straight up. <laughs> you know, the more I read about activists and, you know, emergent strategy from Adrian Murray Brown's work was really helpful in, in giving me language of like reimagining what is possible. And I think, I think we have to reimagine even the DEI industry if we're going to be successful in, in getting racial equity. Yeah. What are some of the things that you hope to see? I mean, part of it is like, yeah, bringing emotions into it, right? Bringing people's emotional experience, but like what would have to change in the industry to actually make this about belonging, equity, and justice? Well, part of me does believe in the representation part. It's like, it's easy for me to talk to other leaders who understand this as opposed to teaching other leaders how to understand it from my perspective. So I do, that is part of the push for me to say, yeah, get more POC leaders in these in positions of power to an influence, right? The continual work on any kind of coaching to help leaders get into these spaces and stay. It's one thing to just get there. It's another thing to stay. And then at the same time, the allyship that it takes to like look at some of the policies and systemic practices within your organizations that are preventing that from happening. I, I'm appalled, I think, when I still hear people say that there's just not enough quote unquote diverse talent out there. And like if this is still a conversation we're having having in 2021, 2022, then my goodness, there's so much work to be done. But, and again, I, part of me too still feels this is, these are old rules that we're playing by. And so I think what I'd like to see also is, you know, thought leaders reimagining what this space looks like. And that's something I've been really interested in, in having conversations around of with other DISA practitioners, adjacent practitioners is, okay, what, like, let's throw that stuff out. And what else can we come up with? So that's an exciting kind of space that I'd like to explore. I don't know if you're doing anything, <laughs> David, but, or if anyone else out there listening is doing something, because I would love to, I think we have to do that in community. 
So, and to reimagine what is possible. So I think I'm still also figuring out what it is. And maybe that's why I'm pivoting some of my DEA consulting strategy stuff towards more of the emotional work because I'm not seeing enough of that stuff happen. And I think within all of these conversations, the emotional capacity for it has to be something we all have a skill set in or ability to do. Beautiful. Yeah. One last, well, this is the second last question. We often share DEI confessions, and these might be things that we have done that are mistakes in the past, things that may be embarrassed by now. I think, and I'll share for myself before you go, you know, over this season, I've talked a lot about the need for myself to like not have such a, so much of a sense of urgency. I've had numerous conversations with a lot of people who have chastised me for, for my work habits. And that's something that I'm still, dear listeners, working through. Krista noticed today that, you know, like, you're so much more cheerful. You have so much more energy. It's like, yeah, that's because like this morning I got enough sleep. I worked out. I, I ate breakfast. I showered. And like, you know, this is the first thing I did at 10 a.m. my time like so like really taking that time for myself building those things in is not something that like is routine for me but like I'm still working at it it's still work and if you've been listening to this podcast all throughout our run you know that's something that I still continue to struggle with but that that's still there for me is there anything that you're wrestling with or like would like to confess in this DEI world Yeah, I think similar to you, David, I hit burnout, right? And I've been working on what it actually means to rest and and what self-care actually looks like for me. And I wish I could say that I wasn't struggling with guilt around taking some time and saying like, you know what, I'm going to sit here and play with my nephew or like, or have a cup of coffee and meditate, right? You know, like when there's an inbox and there's work to be done and and whatnot. So I, I just wrote about this, about my own self of, the thing I'm trying to work against white supremacy culture, right, is what I am subscribing to myself. And so that was kind of my own slap in my face. <laughs> but again, this, there's a continual learning and there's continual work to be done. Mistakes are made. And how do we stop, though, and pause and reevaluate and, and, and change course, right? And so and, how, and having folks who are open and vulnerable about sharing that, yeah, yeah, me too, it helps. And we can also support each other in that so we can be better right and yeah so hopefully i will be better at that this year that's that's something i'm definitely that's top of mind for me in 2022 absolutely absolutely well thank you so much for your time you're sharing your stories i know a lot of people will have benefited from this conversation before we let you go where can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported yeah so if people are looking for workshops or conversations around the introduction of eq and dei you can hit me up, um, go to my website, consciousnessage.com, or um, I'm often on LinkedIn. So definitely follow me on LinkedIn as well, Carissa Begonia. Yes. And we'll definitely have all of those linked in the show notes for those that are listening. Again, thank you so much, Carissa. And, you know, rest well. And, you know, you and I will talk soon. Yeah. Same to you, David. Thank you. Well, we missed out on Connie for the interview, but she's back with us. And now after having listened to the conversation with Carissa, Connie, what you thinking? Yes. Hello, everyone. I am sad that I missed the conversation. But first, before sharing my thoughts, thank you to Carissa for sharing so many gems, as David said, in that conversation. I so personally, I also served as an in-house diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner 
the first, the only, and the other, as Carissa said in the podcast. And so much of what you shared, Carissa, I resonated with. I was like, I had that experience. I had that feeling. So there's a lot that really just spoke to my heart and got my blood boiling again because I remember the frustration of having to essentially do everything as a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner with no resources, no budget, no team for the entire organization, the entire (laughs) community, and then essentially getting blamed when you failed, when you had no resources or anything to help you succeed. So there's so much in there. How was it for you, David? Well, one, Connie, I just want to like tend to the trauma that that brought up. I heard a lot of like angst of like, yeah, this really is like a limited system to work within when you are the one, the only one of the things that like really stuck out to me is like Carissa came to that position out of advocacy. There's something about what to do when you are in that position of power, right? It's one thing to advocate for change and advocate for policies and advocate for programs. But when you're the person who has been tasked with making those things happen, like you realize that, you know, there are limits to what organizations can do given the budget, given the time, given all of these things. And so as we talked about in the conversation, this is never a one person thing, right? And so we can't be everything to everybody, right? Carissa talked about how she was primarily focused on like, hey, I'm the only woman here in this space. And how can we bring other women here? But like having to consider the perspectives of other other marginalized people is really important. So like, who are the other people to bring in both inside? Who are the people to promote and listen to from the inside and from the outside, bring in to give outside perspectives that and and strategies and practices and tools and all of that that you know you might not have had otherwise. Yeah, that really resonates. One thing that really stuck out in like in not my because I wasn't there, but in your conversation with Carissa is she talked about the sense of urgency that she was constantly feeling as a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner in house and. You and I have talked about sense of urgency as a white supremacist cult, uh, characteristic and trait. And when she was talking about her sense of ed- urgency, I was like, wow, like I literally went to work feeling that every single day, partly because of the limited resources. I'm the only person, as you just mentioned. But also there is this factor that Carissa mentioned around, you know, I have people's attention now. Right. Like, when am I going to get their attention again? Social justice is trending now. Right. So I have to actually use the moment and move now. And that's just all a really toxic system and cycle that like I felt really trapped within while I was in an institution. But I can also see our entire nation being trapped in that also. Right. With the summer of 2020 being now, 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 now we have the attention and then where are we now? <laughs> like what? Yeah, I mean, similarly, like March and April of last year, 2021, mm-hmm. right, with uh, Stop Asian Hate, right? Where are we now? <laughs> right? And like, I don't want to discount the type of growth that can come out of trauma. But like, I really wish that, you know, we didn't have to wait for those moments for people to care. I think one of our first DNI confessions that I shared was, you know, the reason that I have the life that I have having this business doing this work is like I'm profiting off of black death like that's that's the reality like people only care and people will only dedicate uh money towards things when they see like oh this is really a problem this like emotionally moved me and you know 
I think part of the work of Amplify RJ beyond the education that we would do like at all times is to create that media that those opportunities that will spark people's interest that don't have to do with like tragedy. Right. If we can only get there. And, you know, I... I don't know if this is on this particular podcast season or episode, but I think a conversation that I'm curious about either with you or other podcast guests is around this idea of empathy, right? Like how it takes such tragedy for people to have empathy, quote unquote, have empathy to take action or to finally make changes within their own lives or spheres of influence. But I've always felt like there's limits to empathy because, you know, there has just been tragedy for the past what, 450 years in this country, and nothing has changed. So I don't know how empathy works, but... Yeah, I don't even know if I would call that empathy more than, like, sympathy and guilt. But, like, this is a whole nother conversation that, you know, we might have on a future episode. Anything else that you want to share as we wrap up today? I think the last thing is just that, like, throughout our season with guests, I heard a recurring theme of how our guests have wanted to re-envision entirely what DEI is. And there's always a call out from our guests to say, like, who else is doing this? Because I would love to join that effort and collective. So I think that as, you know, pessimistic and despairing as we may sound sometimes on the podcast, but there is also underlying all of that. I think there is some hopefulness and desire to want to rebuild and envision something entirely different. And I think that, you know, these conversations have planted some seeds and we're truly excited to hear what listeners are taking away and if they want to join this, you know, effort in re-envisioning DEI entirely. Yeah, I think with that, I'll leave us with the words of Miriam Kaba sharing that hope is a discipline. Yes. Go be hopeful. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next time. We'd also love to hear from you. Is DNI revolution or reform? Send us your thoughts and juicy DEI confessions as a voice memo or text to revolutionorreform at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review and share this with a friend, old school, or you know, with Karen at work. Later, y'all. Bye.